Governor Doug Ducey received praise from multiple circles early in the campaign to get Proposition 123 approved. That turned a bit the closer election day got. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll look at a National Review cover story on Ducey, why his support seems to be extending beyond Arizona, and what that could mean for future higher aspirations. Plus, the transportation vibe seems to be changing in the Valley, with more people embracing public transit, light rail in particular. An international rail conference is starting in Phoenix this week. I'll talk with Valley Metro CEO Scott Smith about the progress that's been made and the challenges that still exist. Also, Sunday's shooting in Orlando has brought into focus the concept of safe spaces for members of the LGBTQ community. We'll learn from writer and punk musician Candace Hansen what a safe space is and why they're still needed. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, the transportation vibe seems to be changing in the Valley, with more people embracing public transit, light rail in particular. An international rail conference is starting in Phoenix this week, and we'll talk with Valley Metro's interim CEO, Scott Smith. Also, Sunday's shooting in Orlando has brought into focus the concept of safe spaces for members of the LGBTQ community. We'll learn from writer and punk musician Candace Hansen what a safe space is and why they're still needed. And also later this hour, we'll talk with legendary blues musician John Mayall. He'll be performing at the Musical Instrument Museum. That's coming up on Thursday night. National Review had a cover story with high praise for Governor Doug Ducey. I'm joined by Matt Benson, who is Communications Director for Governor Jan Brewer, currently a director with Phoenix-based Veritas. Matt, based on what you read in that article, does the governor deserve the praise he got? Oh, absolutely. I think Governor Ducey is is viewed more and more as kind of the next wave of of upcoming uh, conservative Republican leaders in, in this country. And to get that kind of placement and, and that kind of publication is, is just uh, more evidence of that. And the governor did receive praise in a lot of circles when he stepped in to try to settle the school funding lawsuit. And that was even as some opposition to Prop 123 grew later in the campaign. But in the piece, what stood out to me is that he decided to criticize President Obama. Why drop that in? Why does that have anything to do with Prop 123? Well, I I think uh, what you've seen over the last eight years and and even preceding the Obama administration is just a a general erosion of, of public trust in Washington, uh, in politics and, frankly, in, in institutions of all kinds across this country. And uh, so I think that was his, his reason in bringing up the president. And, and, frankly, I think it's valid. For some people, though, that might also mean that the governor is is eyeing, let's say, higher office at some point, though maybe early in the game for that. When you start receiving praise in national publications, just like you know, Governor Brewer did among some circles when you were working for and SB 1070 came out, what about getting that national attention? Do you think the governor's drawn to that? I don't think it's his focus, and, and this is why I say that. Uh, you know, I, I believe he's done two national interviews, national TV interviews, since he took office uh, you know, nearly two years, two years ago. Uh, so you know, he's clearly not on the Sunday uh, talk circuit. Uh, in the way, in the way that, uh, frankly, some other elected uh, officials in Arizona are, uh, and I think he's focused on Arizona. And you know, to the extent some of the actions he's taken here on education reform and the economy and whatnot, to the extent those things garner some national attention, uh, especially among conservative media, you know, I think that's that's only a good thing uh, for Arizona. We, I, I don't recall anyone ever suggesting it was a bad thing, for example, when Janet Napolitano was getting some kudos from national publications and media during her time. Uh, it's, it only reflects well on the state of Arizona. Yeah, I think that the kudos assertion is interesting, Matt, because I think, I think that might be a hard thing to argue. But does it seem far-fetched to you that Governor Ducey had no political aspirations, as the article asserts, that he was an executive with a major company in the city and, and didn't really think about politics? Is that believable? I think every uh, elected official, the caliber of a governor or a U.S. senator or a presidential aspirant, they, they all have uh, political ambitions. Uh, it, it's never by happenstance that they end up just one of these days. Next thing you know, they're they're in Congress or they're on the ninth floor. Uh, uh, look, I, I don't doubt that uh, that Governor Ducey wasn't politically involved, uh, 
you know, prior to uh, the last number of years. I think that, you know, that his name certainly, when I was at the Arizona Republic covering state politics, Doug Ducey's name was not on that top 100 list of, of people you'd think of who are, you know, uh, wannabe uh, candidates for governor or higher office. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, that changed. He took an interest, and he's been tremendously successful for, for it. Matt, this is what I really wanted to ask you. As a, as a former journalist and as someone who, who wrote a lot of speeches, the writer of the National Review piece, John J. Miller, describes Ducey, it almost sounds like a protagonist in a novel to me. He has dark eyes, the husky build of a linebacker, and a crooked nose that he says he broke several times as an athlete in high school. This sounds like creating some sort of amazing narrative for Doug Ducey. What did you make of that paragraph? <laughs> well, I... I made of it uh, that he'd probably prefer not people refer to him as husky, uh, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I think that uh, I think the writer is trying to give people a, a a view of who this governor is, and they might not know Doug Ducey. You know, this is a national publication. You, you can't assume that uh, that readers in other states know who the governor of Arizona is. Uh, just like you know, I wouldn't be able to necessarily tell you who the governor of uh, of Maryland at the moment is. Uh, so, you know, he's trying to paint a picture of who this person is and, and what makes him tick, and, you know, that's how these things are written. Matt, finally, what kind of grade would you give the Ducey administration so far? We're about, what, 18 months into his administration. I, I think he gets an A so far, and, and you know, I, I say that based on where exactly has he had a major stumble? I mean, the, the budget's in good shape. The economy is showing all the right signs. We're growing jobs. He's been able to, to settle this education lawsuit. He got Prop 123 over the finish line. Uh, you know, when I look at the, the, the measure, the, the guideposts of is the administration moving in the right direction or the wrong direction, I mean, he's clearly moving in the right direction. He has a ton of momentum. Uh, and like you say, we're only 18 months in. So, you know, you get to a point in administration where it really finds its footing. And with Governor Brewer, you know, if, if you recall that first year, that first 18 months, man, that was rough, okay? They had a change at the top with chief of staff. They had ugly battles with the legislature. She got through Prop 100. She found her footing. She found her voice and got stronger as she went. And I think that Governor Ducey is going to do the same thing. All right, Matthew Benson, Communications Director at the time for Governor Jan Brewer. He's now a director for the firm Veritas. Matt, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with another point of view on the praise Governor Ducey's receiving from the Republican side of the aisle is Andre Cherney, former chair of the Arizona Democratic Party. He ran against Ducey for state treasurer in 2010. Andre, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, so what do you make of Doug Ducey, how he carries himself, choices he's made as governor? Well, uh, unsurprisingly, I think his choices as governor have been ones that have really uh, put Arizona on a trajectory to be a kind of state that is not going to be leading the country or uh, being equal to the promise we should have for our own people. Um, You look at education and you look at the decisions between funding education and providing the kind of leadership we need both from K through 12 education to higher education. And consistently, uh, Governor Ducey and his administration have chosen to fund very large uh, corporate tax cuts. And that is something they have been very successful in pushing through, but something that is really going to um, harm Arizona's economy in the long run. Andre, do you think that's the direction that a lot of Republican governors are going to try to go. Does he seem like a conventional Republican at this point in time to you? Well, I think he has always been uh, a conventional Republican. Uh, You know, I think because he has come from a business background, uh, a lot of people have, over the course of his career, thought, you know, he has to be a more pragmatic, uh, moderate, thoughtful person who really cares about uh, the kinds of things that the business community cares about uh, in Arizona, about education, around uh, having a workforce of the future, uh, about making the state welcoming to uh, the best and the brightest from around the country. Uh, but the truth is he has always been very much a ideological uh, Republican. I think what the, that's what this uh, National Review story um, really points out, and, and, and that's correct. Uh, he has been a down-the-line 
Republican, uh, frankly, he has not just been a conventional Republican in the past uh, few weeks. Uh, in fact, he's gone further than that. I mean, he went and uh, really paid homage at Trump Tower mm -hmm. to Donald Trump at a time that you have uh, Republican leaders like Mitt Romney and President George Walker Bush and President George Herbert Walker Bush and others uh, saying they can't support him. He has really gone the other direction, um, even in light of some of the comments that Donald Trump has been making over the past couple days about uh, keeping away uh, all immigrants uh, from any country with any history of a terrorist attack, which would mean uh, people from France and England and India and, uh, and many others. Uh, and, and even things like uh, the comments he's made uh, in the light of the Orlando shooting that have been loudly uh, renounced. Uh, still, you saw uh, Governor Ducey doing something that a lot of Republicans wouldn't do, uh, and that's really go uh, and, again, pay homage to, to Donald Trump personally at Trump Tower. So does that indicate to you that Governor Ducey's trying to get himself on the map and wants to help Republicans get a winner, and then maybe he gets something in return for that? Well, certainly that's possible. Uh, but I think that it's really going to uh, harm him and harm the Republican Party in Arizona uh, in the long run and perhaps even in the short run. Uh, you have a Republican nominee who has really said that uh, Hispanic Americans cannot be trusted to be making uh, independent decisions on their own, that they can't be trusted to uh, live up to the duties they have when they swear an allegiance to the Constitution, which is really the what he has said when it's come to the statements he made about Judge Curiel in the Trump University case. Uh, that is not a situation that's going to put the Arizona Republican Party on a positive trajectory. And even more so, Arizona, if we are nothing else, is a state where people are very independent-minded. And the idea that there's literally nothing that Donald Trump can say or do that would not cause Doug Ducey to rescind his endorsement, to do anything other than go and, and pay respects to uh, Donald Trump, just is not going to sit well with independent-minded Republicans uh, and certainly not with the growing number of independents uh, who are really going to be dominating Arizona's political future. Well, Andre, let me finish up with a more specific question about Governor Ducey then. What do you make of the narrative of the entire National Review piece? As I mentioned, there was that paragraph that struck me sort of trying to portray him as someone like a protagonist out of a novel, that sort of thing. Um, and based on what you've said about him being kind of a conventional Republican, I mean, does this indicate to you, though, that, uh, that the national spotlight is on him and there are certain people in Republican circles who would like him to succeed more fully? Oh, I think certainly uh, you're going to have a, a lot of national Republicans who are going to be trying to uh, push up the, the Ducey narrative. You know, even when uh, he and I were running against each other for treasure in 2010, uh, he was leaving the campaign trail to go to the Koch brothers summit and uh, make an appearance there. Uh, he really has been, been groomed and is being groomed uh, by um, the really dominant financial players uh, in the Republican Party, uh, and he has, uh, as governor, really been enacting their uh, agenda. Uh, hats off to him. He's been doing it very successfully, more successfully than just about any governor in recent memory in terms of getting a huge agenda through the legislature. Uh, I just happen to think it's an agenda that's really going to hurt Arizona this year and for years to come. Andre Cherney is former chair of the Arizona Democratic Party. As he mentioned, he ran against Doug Ducey for state treasurer in 2010. We've been talking about the National Review cover story on Governor Ducey. Andre, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk transit with Valley Metro's interim CEO with Scott Smith. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Four Seasons Resort Scottsdale at True North. Offerings for a family summer escape include dive-in movies, ice cream socials at Proof, and specialty golf and spa packages. FourSeasons.com slash Scottsdale.
And good morning. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Be with us today at 1 for News Hour from the BBC. Well, sunny, clear skies across the state right now. It's 92 degrees in Tucson, 95 in Casa Grande, 90 in Yuma, in Prescott, 79 degrees. And up in Flagstaff under sunny skies, it's 70 right now. Did you know you can turn your car, truck, or boat into something you really want? When you donate your vehicle, you'll make it possible for KJZZ's local reporters to cover everything that's important to you and your community. Donating your car, truck, or boat is easy at cars.kjzz.org. Sunny skies right now, 8% relative humidity. It's 93 degrees in Phoenix at 1123. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Light rail is expanding in the valley as public transportation options in the area continue to grow. And somehow in the heat of summer, in a place that for decades was known for its car culture, Valley Metro has attracted the 2016 American Public Transportation Association Rail Conference and the International Rail Rodeo to Phoenix. At least 2,500 rail professionals and CEOs are expected to attend. And with me to talk more about that and transportation in the valley is former Mesa Mayor, current interim CEO, of Valley Metro, Scott Smith. Scott, welcome. Steve, thanks for having me. All right, before we get into really important stuff, <laughs> what the heck's a rail rodeo? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. A, a rail rodeo is a competition between rail operators, the drivers, uh, and they, they go through certain uh, steps and certain things like how to stop at a platform on time, acceleration. You know, basically it's a driving competition. And then we also have maintenance uh, where they, uh, well, they'll have a train, they'll create certain defects and things, and, and they'll have teams of maintenance uh, personnel who will compete against each other uh, to see who, can, uh, who the best maintenance teams are. It's, it's actually sort of a, a fun to watch. That's so no ropes involved here. Uh, no, no ropes. I, you know, I, tr- I offered to add some events like train riding, uh, wire jumping, you know, <laughs> and if you hit the 750 volt, you know, sorry, but they didn't go for that. I, I couldn't believe it. They just wanted to stay with the more normal things. So it's got more seriously. What does this indicate to you about, about Valley Metro, about Phoenix and public transit to have a huge conference like this in a place that, again, as I referred to not that long ago, was seen as, okay, it's all about cars? Well, it, it shows one thing, and that is that our rail system, even though it's relatively short by national standards at, at just uh, about 27 miles, is still been recognized uh, for its success. Uh, we're seven and a half years in now, and I think by all measures, uh, no matter how you look at it, uh, it's been a success. It's been not only accepted by the community, but embraced. And that that story is well known nationally. People look at Phoenix as uh, for what we did and for how we're operating it and the things that have happened, and, and they wanted to be part of it. And it's been credited with bringing a lot of money, public and private investment, along the rail routes. I mean, how big a difference has it made? Well, I think what you have to do is look at before and after. And there's no doubt that uh, and there's debate as to how much we have studies that show everywhere from six to eight billion dollars of public and private investment along the light rail corridor. Uh, no matter how the measure is, there's definitely been a substantial uptick in, in investment. If you look at our route, it starts uh, basically in downtown Mesa, goes right down uh, Main Street Apache through uh, the edge of downtown Tempe and along Washington, downtown Phoenix up central. These are not areas that have been booming and thriving for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, even downtown Phoenix, if you look at it, it didn't change when we built uh, what was then America West Arena. It didn't change when we built what was then Bank One Ballpark. It didn't really start changing until two things happened, and they, they really are, cannot be uh, disconnected, and that is the arrival of, of the ASU downtown campus and light rail. And I don't believe there would be an ASU downtown campus, downtown presence. It is, and ASU has said this, without light rail. So there's no doubt that light rail has been the uh, has has been the catalyst, and I can tell you from my experience in Mesa, mm. we went over 30 years and did not have a single dollar invested in residential uh, real estate in downtown Mesa or along uh, Main Street. Uh, and since light rail has come in, we've had now uh, uh, four university universities and colleges now ASU proposal coming in. And we've had nearly $100 million in purely residential investment. None of that happens without light rail. So there's no doubt that when you make that kind of public investment, Mm -hmm. and in this case it's light rail, that it serves as a magnet for other investment. As someone who's been a longtime supporter, as you have been of light rail, are you surprised at how successful it's been? 
I think anyone who says that they're not surprised is probably feeding to because there was always the question as to whether this type of transportation would work in a western city, in a suburban city, in a car-centric, an auto-centric uh, uh, um, city. And that was, that was the big debate for many years. Uh, and before cities such as Portland and Salt Lake and Dallas and Denver and now Phoenix put it in, there were many who argued that, no, this is just uh, – this is the antithesis of how these communities were, were developed. And, and that's true. Hmm. But what we didn't realize is that, number one, every great metro area in the world uh, has transportation options. And light rail and, and that type of mass transit, high-capacity mass transit, will never replace the car. But what it does is it creates an option for people who want to live in a metro area. The other thing it does is it goes into places and creates the, that kind of magnet for investment uh, that draw people. And we find that our ridership is different than it is on the East Coast and in the high-density urban areas. Uh, our uses are different. Uh, and we've, we've found out that people still use it. They just use it in a slightly different way in ways that no one could imagine before the Simpsons were actually, were actually uh, constructed. And across the West, our peer cities, as I've mentioned, uh, these systems have all been successful. Now, going forward, as you mentioned, it's, it's limited to some extent at this point. People who have the availability of using light rail seem to like it quite a bit. In order for light rail to continue to expand, for public transit options to continue to expand here, are you going to have to get cities like Scottsdale, for example, accepting it? Or are there other ways to get around that? I don't think you have to get cities to accept it. I think cities will accept it when they see the positive changes that it can make. If it's done right, mm. uh, you, you can do things, you can develop it in a way that doesn't do it right. I think so far we've done it right here. I know in Mesa, when I first came in as mayor, there was a big debate as to whether we should extend it. There was a, even a bigger debate as to what route that would take. There were people who had legitimate concerns that going down Main Street, right through the middle of our Main Street uh, downtown area, of more of a traditional, they thought it would be it would ruin it. It would ruin the character. It would ruin it physically, everything. Uh, and that those are legitimate concerns. But we spent the time to talk to people, to listen to their concerns. And if you've been on the light rail through downtown Mesa, you'll see that it, it, it's an it's an incredible experience because light rail became part of the scenery. It became part of the the experience and. Uh, I, you know, as, as the former mayor who was involved in that process, there's nothing that makes me feel better than to have someone come up and completely unsolicited says, you know, I, I'm amazed at how light rail fits in and, and has elevated our downtown uh, through the way that you chose to do the light posts and, and, the, and the curbs and the landscape. Just the, just the presence, it has created something positive that has uh, meant a lot more energy. And, and that's, you know, when, when you've hit the sweet spot. If we will do that going forward... Mm we'll find that it will be a, a, a net positive and communities will want it because they'll figure out that, yes, if you do it right, it can create a positive uh, experience for you. Now, Scott, as we said, not everyone is on board with this. And I want to read part of a letter to the editor in The Republic from just a couple of days ago. A person wrote, why do we spend billions on a few miles of light rail lines to serve a very small percentage of people when we can add hundreds of buses with shaded pullouts, even some trolley lines that share the street with cars? Now, that has been an argument that's been going on quite a long time. So at this point, especially considering how expensive it is really to do any sort of infrastructure things in the Valley and any place else, why is expanding light rail still a good idea to you? Well, I think it's a good idea because you accomplish multiple goals. And this is something, why do we do light rail when we can have buses? You know, that's, that's a legitimate argument that people can put on there. But what they're, I think they're missing one thing. Light rail is more than just moving people from point A to point B. Just like freeways are more than moving people from point A to point B. People think that that's the only reason we build these highways. But actually, it's, it's the impact that public investment in infrastructure, especially transportation infrastructure, makes. And it's a different investment when you build a, uh, a fixed line. I've, I've heard people tell me the worst thing about light rail is that it's fixed. You can't move it like buses. And I'll say, from a purely transportation point, you're right. But the difference is, is that buses never create investment. Why? Because they're not fixed. A light rail is a fixed investment. People know it's going to be there. And so... People adapt their investment uh, priorities, they adapt their lifestyles, and they adapt the way that they interact with each other through investments in things such as light rail. Uh, and that's why I believe the investment is, uh, is, is still warranted. As I've said, um, we've just a scorekeeping $8 billion worth of, of public and private investment in the light rail corridor since, uh, uh, since it opened in two, that late 2008. Um, much of that, if not most of that would not have occurred without that line being there. And it certainly would not have happened without bus, with bus service. It's just not the way it works. 
Scott Smith is interim CEO of Valley Metro. We've been talking about, in part, the 2016 American Public Transportation Association Rail Conference and International Rail Rodeo in Phoenix. At least 2,500 rail professionals and CEOs are expected to attend. That gets started today, right, Scott? Started today. The Rail Rodeo and the actual conference uh, begins on Sunday. Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. In the aftermath of Sunday's mass shooting in Orlando, there's been a lot of discussion on the continued presence of homophobia in the society. For some, the shootings are a reminder that many members of the LGBTQ community face the threat of violence in their day-to-day lives. In many communities, there have been efforts to carve out spaces where all people, especially members of the LGBTQ community, feel secure and comfortable being who they are in public. Candace Hansen's a music journalist in Orange County who wrote a piece about the need for these safe spaces for the OC Weekly. She explained to us that to combat violence against marginalized groups, we need to begin by examining the way we speak and how it affects our culture. Semantics matter. Like, if you feel really enraged about what happened, I think the biggest thing that you can do is go back into your communities and say something when people make homophobic comments. Because the reason that violence against queer and trans people is accepted is because of all the little things that make it known that being gay is not okay, that being gay is a punchline, that being gay is an insult, that being gay is bad. And so the way that we can start, that anyone can start to change the world based on what happened to stop violence against queer and trans people is to stop letting people use us as a punchline or as an insult. Semantics matter, and anyone can make a difference. There may be the assumption that some would say, well, we have uh, same-sex marriage, uh, Supreme Court has accepted this, and more and more people are realizing that they know people who are gay or lesbian, transgender, and they're, they're friends, they're comfortable with them, whatnot. So what is the concept of the safe space, and why is it still needed, in your opinion? It's a space generally in underground or music culture, when you walk into the physical space, it's known and agreed upon by all people who are entering the space that there's no racism, no sexism, no homophobia, no transphobia, and no violence allowed in these spaces. They're spaces that seek to create a community where everyone is represented, also where people are, all kinds of people are comfortable coming and sharing their art and enjoying art by other people. By art, I mean music as well as visual and sometimes performance art. Spaces that are made specifically for the LGBTQ community to be designated as safe spaces exist because it's not safe to go out sometimes if you are a queer person sharing with the world your queerness. For example, in my experience, you know, I've, I live in the Orange County area. I've been in the public with my partner holding hands once at Disneyland and someone drove by and, and screamed, the F expletive at us as loud as they possibly could and skid away. So in that moment, yes, we're living in a post-marriage society, but it doesn't mean just because I have the right to marry my partner that I'm going to be free from the violence or discrimination that exists within people. So at least I know when I'm going to the LGBT center or to a queer bar that that's not going to happen to me. How much of that safe space is about physical safety as you were sort of alluding to, and how much is about emotional safety and feeling like this is a place where, yes, I can can really be myself. It's not just that no one's going to try to beat me up. I can actually completely express who I am as a human being. Well, it's definitely both of those things. It's both when you know you're in a place that's a safe space, it's physical safety and it's emotional safety. There's been this meme that's been circulating uh, the last week that says, if you've never been scared to hold your partner's hand in public, Maybe that's why you don't understand how a bar can become a sanctuary. And I think that that really succinctly sums it up. So not only when you're in a safe space like that, can you be yourself? Can you have fun? Can you like let the layers that have built up on your body of having to survive down and start to feel the way that other people get to feel on a Friday night a little bit free, you know, feel like you can get a little tipsy and someone's not going to hurt you. Or feel like, especially for younger, single, queer people, feel like you could actually like flirt with someone. But when it comes to safe spaces in DIY and punk underground, those are some of the only places where your band can get booked. So it's not only like emotional and physical safety, but it's like 
if I'm going to be a musician, like, it's very difficult for me to get a gig when it's heterosexual cisgender men who predominantly book shows, who predominantly own the clubs and bars who are booking shows. I imagine, I don't know for sure, that there probably are a limited number of safe spaces. And because of that, how much work can be done to protect those safe spaces when it comes to something like gentrification? And people say, well, you know, the person who owns the property may say, okay, well, sorry to do this to you, but I can really make a nice profit here. That's exactly it. It's very difficult to sustain art spaces in general, music spaces, dance spaces, especially when they're a safe space, because frankly, as someone who's in a queer hardcore band, people aren't showing up to support queer hardcore. You're not getting the $5 at the door for hundreds of people like you would if it was a band full of cis, gender, heterosexual men who are playing the same style of music. So when you're a safe space and you're having shows like that, you're not making as much money. You're Also, when you're focusing on creating, a, you know, typically these are youth-centered, youth-community-driven, youth, youth is not doesn't have a lot of money. So you're going to be looking for spaces that have, you know, affordable rent. Many members of the LGBTQ community are on the same page when it relates to, or as it relates to safe spaces. And yet at the same time, it's not universal. And so what is going on as far as the arguments against? And are they coming from people that that you respect and you understand their point of view? So there is some discussion within the LGBTQ community, also within the DIY and punk communities, about whether safe spaces are necessary or if they're kind of like, you know, not, or maybe that they're not effective. And a large percentage of people who have this belief think that safe spaces are only good for a temporary moment. And in my article, I talked to a trans woman, actually, who's a little bit older. And she actually said that she doesn't like the idea of a safe space because at the end of the day, the world is an unsafe place, which is also the critique that many people who are not from marginalized communities have. And I do think that that is a valid a valid point. I think that the world is an unsafe space and it, it sucks. But I think that safe spaces are necessary because they give a place for everyone to have at least a moment of feeling safety. And people who don't actually exist in marginalized communities, they actually get to have that all the time. They actually get to go out and they get to have their band apply to try to play on a show and they actually will get a response back. They can actually go and hit on someone in public and not be murdered over it. They can actually go to a bathroom and not have to worry about having their ID or being beat up because they have to go urinate. So yes, while I understand the world is an unsafe space, I think that safe spaces are still necessary because they give us not just a place to be, to build community, but they give us a place to let our hair down a little bit, you know, to like not have to be on constant on guard. They give us a place, I don't know, where we can actually thrive, even if it is for two hours. When you're in that safe space, do you notice something physically, emotionally in yourself where, okay, now I can really relax. Now there is, I'm in this sort of protective space. I'm not jaded, but I've been doing this work for so long. I'm 30. I started throwing shows when I was like 17 that now I don't notice it as much for anything other than the way that other people treat me. But I could tell you the first time that I went into a space that was a safe space, it was like life affirming and life changing. I walked in. There was this feminist event called Girl Fair that was held in Santa Ana for over 10 years. And I had been reading about it in the paper for a few years and I really, really, really wanted to go. And I come from like a punk background where it isn't always the safest for women and queer people. And finally, I convinced someone that I was friends with to come with me because I was so scared to go somewhere alone. I don't know why. And I walked in the door and I remember I had never, ever seen so many women at a show in my life and so many queer people at a show in my life that I just didn't even know what to do. I had never understood how unsafe or how alone I actually was until I walked into a space full of people like me. And just being there, 
I remember just watching this band and almost feeling scared of the potential to actually feel free. And I was only there like two hours and I went home and I just remember just feeling changed by that. Just knowing that that was possible because when you're young and you're punk, you read about the 1970s LA punk scene and how cool and how open and how free everybody was. And you read about the riot girl scene in the nineties and you think, wow, I wish that I had those things today. And the sad reality was that I did have those things near me, but I just never knew. I was too scared to go because I had basically been conditioned to hate the person I was because I was queer, because I was woman in a very masculine queer scene. And when I finally got to show up to a place where I could not just be myself, but see other people like myself, see other people like myself in a band with other people like myself, having a good time, smiling, having friends, it was life-changing because I saw that that could be my future. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So not only is it great to go in there and feel safe, right? Like all the heavy stuff, like, yeah, some people do feel like they have targets on their back because they're queer or trans, especially queer and trans people of color. But just the immediate effect of walking into a space and seeing people like you who are maybe 10 years older and realizing for the first time that you could have a future, I think that that was the biggest thing that I ever got out of a safe space. Candace Hansen is a music journalist in Orange County. We've been talking about safe spaces. She wrote about the need for them for the OC Weekly. Still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk about Frank Lloyd Wright and blues musician John Mayall. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Phoenix General, apparel, home, and gifts for life in the desert, bringing fair trade and sustainably sourced fashion to the valley, now open at the Colony in Phoenix. Details at phxgeneral.com. Good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 FM and kjzz.org. You can also download the KJZZ mobile app for your smartphone. Well, we hit a high of 99 degrees in Phoenix yesterday on our way to 103. Today, warming up to 104 and then 106 by Friday. We may see 111 on Saturday in the National Weather Service forecasting a possible 119 degrees by Sunday. We have NPRs here and now from Boston coming up at noon. The city of Orlando has created a fund to support victims and families of the mass shooting. How are businesses responding to the attack? And also, does banning email improve productivity? A couple of the stories all coming up at noon on KJZZ. 93 degrees in Phoenix at 1145. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Frank Lloyd Wright's impact is still felt very strongly around the valley. His Taliesin West attracts budding architects and advanced teachers alike and draws tourists from all over the world. A complicated battle in Phoenix's Arcadia neighborhood over what to do with the so-called David and Gladys Wright House designed by Frank Lloyd Wright continues. And Wright is still an attractive figure for novelists and biographers alike. That brings us to Hugh Howard, author of the new book, Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Philip Johnson. Hugh, thanks for being with us for a few minutes. Very happy to be here. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to focus quite a bit on Frank Lloyd Wright because of our ties here, but but I will get to, to Philip Johnson as well. My first question is, early in the book, you write of Wright that he liked attention to be paid. He enjoyed stirring things up, doing and saying the unexpected. Now, was that an act or was that his true nature? I think he liked attention. Uh, there are those who've called him a narcissist, uh, and uh, I'm not sure they were too far off base. But I think some of the time the nature of genius is that uh, you like people to pay attention, and uh, and it stimulates you to do some of your best work. I think that may have been the case with Wright. And how much of that attention do you think actually was part of the reason he was able to get uh, attention for his architecture? I mean, clearly his his skills are well-respected and have been for a century, but was he able to get even more respect for his architecture because he was sort of a larger-than-life figure? Well, I think that's true. Uh, I think he did, yes. And in fact, writing about both Johnson and Wright, one of the things that attracted me to both of these men and to their relationship was that neither of them ever shut up. <laughs> I mean, they, they really talked all the time. They talked very interestingly, and they often talked about architecture and, and one another, too, by the way. But, but it was the architectural talk that, uh, that I think enhanced Wright's career. 
How competitive were these two? And, and why is it that, at least in the non-architectural circles, Wright is so much better known? Well, I think Wright was by far the greater gifted of the two. I think Philip Johnson, in, in fact, when I first started to write this book, uh, uh, the working title was The Master and the Maestro. Ah. And there's no question that Wright was the master. Johnson's gifts were different. I mean, he designed many interesting buildings, but I think maybe an even greater gift of his was to draw attention to architecture and to other architects, including Wright. Now, were he and and Johnson, could we describe them as competitors, adversaries? Did that change as the years went by? I don't think they were ever, ever truly competitors. Um, they were any more than, uh, although my title may suggest that, I call, an art, I call them architectures art couple. They were never truly a couple in the sense that uh, they were not a couple couple because one was gay and the other one was something of a homophobe. They were never partners in an architectural sense. But they were competitors in that they were looking for people's attention uh, and, and getting it and getting it for one another. But I think that Wright's genius was significantly greater than, than Johnson's, certainly. Hugh, what, uh, for those who, who don't know and haven't had a chance to read your book at this point, what were some of the most impactful designs that, that Johnson had that, that people would know of? Well, I think, you know, if you look at 20th century architecture and you pick the two houses that are most likely to be discussed and admired and, and that are the most controversial in a number of different ways, you've got Wright's falling water, but you have to put Johnson's glass house into that mix, too. It's in New Canaan, Connecticut. It's a house that is made of glass, and, and people thought it was kind of a joke to start with. I mean, literally, the New Yorker made fun of it in its cartoons on a couple of different occasions shortly after it was constructed. And I guess the other building that I would say is really kind of central to understanding what Philip Johnson did was, in fact, a, a, a building that he designed along with Mies van der Rohe, and that would be the Seagram Tower in New York, which is the, you know, the kind of ultimate, uh, the, the, the prettiest of the, uh, of the, of the glass skyscrapers of, of that time and the progenitor of many, 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 many others around the world, not only in New York. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Hugh Howard. He's the author of the new book, Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Now, Hugh, you've written about some very famous people over the years. And, yeah, I wonder, it's, is writing about Wright something that is, uh, I mentioned novelists still love to write about him. They, they like to use him as an example. Um, was he such a character that it's almost hard to not want to write about him? I think there's something to that, although I think what attracted me as, as much as his interesting character, and, and I think the, you know, one of the reasons that there's been a couple of good pieces of fiction written about him is that his life was so full of event. You know, there were fires, there were murders, there were you know, widely publicized divorces. He left his wife and children at one point, so there's, there's all this drama in his life. But for me, I think what really attracted me to him was the fact that he was this very protein figure who really had, in some ways, three quite distinct careers, which I won't enumerate at the moment. But I think for anybody who was of a certain age, uh, you have to admire someone who can reinvent himself um, from his 20s into his 40s or 50s and, and yet again in his 70s. And as I mentioned in the introduction, and, and people who live in Phoenix know a lot about this, his work still generates so much passion, so much energy. Should it be preserved? How should it be preserved? Um, it, that's another thing that's sort of incredible to me. I mean, he's he passed away in the late 50s, and he obviously was not a young man at that point. So he's been able to go through, it's almost, he's been impactful in, in parts of three centuries, has he not? Well, I think his legacy really survives. I mean, he, he was, you know, Philip Johnson jokingly referred to him as the greatest architect of the 19th century. Um, and he uttered those words in the 1950s at a time when Wright was designing the Guggenheim in New York. So it was always uh, intended to diminish, but also it was a witticism rather than a statement of any kind of truth. Uh, but I think his legacy is... Uh, it is certainly enduring. Uh, I think that people who go and visit his houses, they have uh, an architectural experience unlike that of most houses. And I think it, uh, it, it stays with people. They, they get some of the ideas that he had. They have experienced some of the drama of the places. You know, he, he liked nothing better than to surprise you when you walked into his houses and, 
and it went from a low ceiling to a tall ceiling, from a dark space to a light space, from a small one to a big one, and back again in many cases. And I think that people who, even folks who aren't particularly attuned to architecture, when they visit a right house, they come away remembering the guy's name and being interested in some of his ideas and how he executed them. So, Hugh, in the big picture, how much of a defender was right of American architecture, and how much of a symbol is he of American architecture, at least for that time period? Well, Wright never really admitted that he had anyone who influenced him. He always said that he was a complete original. You know, he and Michelangelo were the, you know, the two <laughs> great innovators in, in history. So, you know, he had a, a, an ego as large as all of Montana, if you will. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think that uh, uh, he ha- has to be thought of as somebody who um, influenced other architects to some degree, uh, but I think his genius w- was was pretty individualized. Did Johnson feel like he was, uh, when you mentioned the master and the maestro, did he himself feel like, even if he needled Wright a little bit, he indeed, that Wright was the master and he was not? Oh, I think he always knew that. Uh, when Wright was alive, he had some trouble admitting to it. But I think after his death, he spent uh, almost 40 years after Wright died, Johnson did, talking about Wright's legacy and talking about what a master he was and talking about how he'd been inspired by him. You know, one one of Johnson's sort of great philosophical insights, if you will, is that he he talked about architectural architecture as a matter of procession. He talked about the processional element in architecture where you can't experience a building just through a photograph. You have to walk through it. You have to see it change as, as, as you move through it in time. And the paradigm that he used, the exemplar he used to, to, to make the case for what the processional is in architecture was Talies and West. Hmm. Hugh, you write at the very end of the book, this is just about a minute or so left here. I, I'm curious to say, to see what you think about, it, it, there was a, a paragraph that struck me, and I don't have the book right in front of me, but it almost seemed as if Wright had mellowed Near the end, was was that a characterization that that uh, can be quantified? Uh, yeah, I think it's true. I think that at the end of his life, in fact, he at one point uh, reached out to Philip Johnson. They'd been uh, involved in uh, some some arguments and some uh, some disagreements. He reached out to Johnson on a couple of occasions in the last eighteen or twenty-four months of his life, while he was living in New York. Right, was in the late nineteen fifties. Took him to dinner a couple of times, uh, and 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 made nice in some sense. Um, I, I think that was not so much about Johnson's talent as it was so much uh, a kind of end of life instinct on Wright's part because he knew he wasn't going to live forever. He was in his 90s; he'd had some health aspects, but uh, but I think it was uh, at the same time an acknowledgement that that they were, they had been important together. Hugh Howard is author of the new book, Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Hugh, nice to talk with you. Thanks for the time. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for the questions. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Legendary bluesman John Mayall is probably most famous for working with some of the best guitarists of the 20th century, including Peter Green, who later played with Fleetwood Mac, Mick Taylor before he was with the Rolling Stones, and Eric Clapton. his 80s, Mayall is still playing and touring. He'll be at MIM, the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, with his band tomorrow night. John Mayall, you've had a great and long career, but is this a renaissance at all for you right now? You're still touring, and some of your albums from the 60s have been re-released. Uh, not, not really. It's a renaissance in the sense that, uh, that now we've got a proper record company. You know, it's made a difference because it's a, a, a small operation, but we can get the work out there. So, you know, there's been two releases of the uh, Peter Green, John V. McFleetwood uh, live from '67. Those two releases are, are now out, so we're really on the you know on the case now. It's, it's, it's a very happy situation. Do you feel like 
uh, your music has evolved? Are you still experimenting with new things? Well, it, it's the same, basically the same, you know, because I, I can only play one way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the difference, of course, is, uh, is the, the best band I've ever had, and we've been together seven years now, so it really shows in the music. You know, but the difference is, you know, blues is always, as from my, my point of view, it always has to uh, move with the times because it's supposed to reflect what's going on in the, around the world uh, from your own viewpoint. What makes this the best band you've worked with then? Explain that for us. Because because the, the interplay between us and the way we f- we feel m- musically, it's just uh, it's a great gift to have such uh, great guys. What's the difference for you, and what do you like better or worse? Or are there what are what are the positive qualities for you about playing live as opposed to being in the studio? Well, they're two you know they're two completely different things, really. A, a studio, you you get in there and you, uh, and and you're creating something that's of lasting uh, importance, you know, so you want to get it right. Whereas on the live situation, it's, uh, you know, you just respond to the audience and, and, and also the sound in the in the venue, um, you know, all these aspects. But, you know, live playing is is uh, very very much more free, of course, because you, you don't have the chance to um, to go back and inspect it. look at the list of the people you have worked with it is a who's who of hall of famers you're a hall of famer yourself how does that end up coming together well you know i I create music with with the people i want to work with and you know we create the music together you know it's it's something you can't really explain as long as you're all in in this you know following the same path but you know i've always believed that the the best singers are uh are individuals because they don't sound like anybody else and they have their own uh, viewpoint on it. And I think my band, in addition to that, uh, is different from other show bands with putting on shows because we do a different show every night. It's different, different set list every night, and uh, and there's no no rules and regulations. Most bands go on; they have a have a, they play the same thing every night, and uh, you know I, I do the complete opposite of that. And that's something that has in common with jazz music. Let's go back to 1967 a little bit, because I think when people see the names, a lot of people, not not blues fans necessarily, but a lot of people will see the names of uh, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood, and they're going to think about sort of the pop music of Fleetwood Mac that became so popular late 70s and before that. But but you were playing blues music with these guys in these 1967 albums. Were they different players then? Were they playing a different style? And what was that band like, playing with Peter Green and those two? Well, How does you that know, their, their, root, their root music, in, in, in all three cases, uh, you know, they they started off playing the blues. And it's the same with uh, any musician who, who I've worked with. They, they all, You all start with the blues, and then in the process uh, of playing uh, either by yourself or together, uh, they begin to develop their own direction and their own style that goes with it. 82-year-old blues man John Mayall. He and his band will be performing in Phoenix at MIM on Thursday night. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Arizona Theater Company, presenting its 50th season of Broadway comedy's new productions and musicals, including the timeless Fiddler on the Roof. Subscriptions and more at arizonatheater.org. Mm-hmm.